welcome to, it's not episode 100, but it's episode 99 of Bumper Sticker Faith Podcast 99. That's two sixes upside down, but we're almost at 100. Uh, and um, I'm here this morning with my friend uh, Seth Wick, who is a poet. I don't know if I've ever had an all-out poet on the podcast. No, I haven't. I know I haven't. So um, welcome. First of thank, all, thank you. I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here for episode 99. I think that's a that's a better number than 100 for sure. Yeah, it's like right on the edge, right? Yeah. And not right on the edge in this. I mean, that's a I don't know. That's a pretty cool place to be. I think. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, and I got your name from uh, I learned about you from Jack Baumgartner, who's been on the show before, uh, because mm-hmm. I was asking Jack some questions about poetry. Uh, because I dabble in my genre is bad poetry. And, um, <laughs> and he said, you know, if you want to actually, uh, talk with a good poet, <laughs> um, Seth Wick, and he gave me your information and yeah. And he, and he gave me a, um, a link to, which people can check out a YouTube video of you reading, uh, Ulysses comes to Amarillo. And, um, I remember I was in the, in our basement working on a, a like a, a very simple task, a project, you know, where I had to mm-hmm. use my hands and whatever, be creating something. But as soon as you started reading your poem, I was like so drawn in and probably like, I don't know, five minutes into it, I realized I, I hadn't moved. I was just kind of <laughs> in a trance listening to you uh, read your poem, um, Ulysses Comes uh, to Amarillo and Arrives in Amarillo. Um, so just fantastic. So Jack was right. You, you truly are, you truly are good, a good poet. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate that Jack would say that. I do just want you to know that I also dabble in bad poetry. There's, <laughs> I, it's funny because you, you brought this up and I've had this sitting on my desk for six months or something. We, there's a, the local university has a bad poetry contest every year. Really? That's awesome. I, I got the third worst poem. <laughs> I don't know if getting the third worst poem makes you better <laughs> or I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. You're not, you're not the worst. So. Sure. Sure. <laughs> there is something to that though, because you'll never start if you think you have to be a good poet. Right. Sure. Yeah. I, th- I think it's probably really good to just have fun and play yeah. with language uh, and maybe leave that ambition to, well, if, if it comes around, maybe leave it for later, but you can't lose that, just that willingness to uh, just have fun with language and make bad stuff. Yeah. That's just, just part of it. Yeah. So you're, where are you, where are you from? Where are you at right now? I, I live in Amarillo, Texas. Uh, I've been here since I graduated from college 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um. I grew up in a, on a farm about a mile north of a town called Umbarger, Texas, which is hmm. 30 minutes from here. Wow. Um, it was, it was, I mean, it still is, I think in the 2020 census, there are maybe 300 people uh, that live in Umbarger. It wasn't big enough for a school. So I would drive into a nearby town of yeah. called Canyon uh, and I went to school there. But uh, I mean, I, I love Umbarger. If if it was economically viable, I would I would be there right now. Um, yeah, but I can't. I want to. Yeah, I want to 
dig into that a little. Um, but as for because people are listening or watching, uh, when, when I introduce you, I guess properly, Seth uh, Wick is uh, your husband, father, and a poet, and uh, from Amarillo, like you said. And some of your poems, which I referred to already, is um, Ulysses Rives in Amarillo. Hawk lies down with rabbit, which I listened to a podcast where you talk, where you give that poem as well. Uh, he will speak for himself and many more. People can go to sethwick.com to find more. Uh, he's published in places like Reform Journal and Ecstasis Magazine, Fathom Magazine. Uh, you've won several awards or nearly won several awards. Yeah. <laughs> Third worst or whatever. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, so a legitimate, legitimate poet. Um, and I'm just so, so excited to to talk to you and to, to get to know you. And, and I think, um, this, this time in, uh, in, in our lives, uh, in the history of our nation and that, and cultural things that are going on, I just think we need more poetry. <laughs> like, I, I really do. Or, or the, the ideas and that, the, the methods behind it, some, something to that effect. But because one, one thing too, I guess to dive in, you talked about where you're from in Umbarger, Texas, and Amer and that's just you're just thirty minutes away now, mm -hmm. right? And that is that whole idea of um, growing up and remaining someplace. It's so captivating uh, to me. I'm in. I grew up in northeastern Ohio, kind of in a similar situation in a. Mm -hmm. in a town which wasn't really even a town and we had to go to another town to actually have a school some mm -hmm. kind of a real rural place but now i'm in the chicago suburbs and it's just it's just like chaos sure. <laughs> and i feel far from i feel far from home you know mm -hmm. and there is there is something about that and i heard you um speaking about like the idea of place the sense of place before and maybe mm -hmm. you could talk more about uh that as I guess, as we begin in the sense of, I think you, you contrasted provincial and parochial. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Could you elaborate on that? Tell us what that means. Sure. I, that's, I mean, it's not my idea originally. I think uh, Patrick Cavanaugh, who's an Irish poet, um, uh, <clears> there <throat> was kind of his distinction, the, the difference between being provincial and being parochial or from, from a parish. Uh, and being Irish, I think it, it might help realizing an Irish person growing up in the shadow of Great Britain, um, mm. and, and wanting to have your own culture. Uh, but so many of your countrymen, uh, are just looking over their shoulder towards England saying like, what are they doing over there so that we can do that also so that we can participate in what it is to be English, uh, while, while Patrick Kavanaugh is saying, no, but we're Irish. We have this incredible culture, an incredible yeah. history, if you would only be aware of it. Yeah. Uh, and he makes this distinction of being, of being from a parish and saying, we love this place. There's so much to, to admire. There's beauty here. There's, uh, like I said earlier, this deep history and the language and, um, that being sufficient that you don't have to look towards the metropolis to see what they say about everything, mm -hmm. uh, 
to know what you're supposed to think, um, which really just serves the metropolis. It doesn't serve you locally where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I've found that um, really freeing as somebody that's um, a, a little bit on one hand in the provinces um, to say, no, I don't, I'm not in the province to New York or mm-hmm. whatever the, the big uh, leader and culture is. Uh, but to say Umbarger uh, is is fine. 300 people that we grew up here and the four generations um, of my family that's been here, there's a lot of history. I mean, enough enough to uh, enough history there to to make uh, an imagination. I guess uh, I, it's the the one of the poems that uh, Patrick Kavanaugh wrote. He he talks about the. It's in it's as World War Two is beginning, and there's this this Irishman who's who's taken off his shirt and he's defending his little his little plot of land in Ireland with a pitchfork against some of his neighbors, and it it, it being in his mind the poet's mind um, as big of a deal as what's brewing in mainland Europe with the war. And at the end at the end of the poem, he says. Um, <clears throat> the ghost of Homer comes whispering in my ear and says, I made the Iliad from such a local row as this. And really, if you look at like the Iliad, it was this tiny little, I mean, Troy relative to big metropolises now was small. It's you can go and see what I guess are ruins of it now. And it's, it's a tiny place, but it has this massive role in the Western imagination. Um, So that's, that's the local imagination for me. You had an application to cheese too. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, there's a there's a WH uh, Auden has a has a poem and I I love it. I'll see if I can remember it. It should be pretty easy to remember. It's only like two lines long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a, a poet's hope to be like some valley cheese, local, but prized elsewhere. Hmm. Um, and I. I guess if you can, if you think about mm-hmm. how cheeses were, I mean, now it's just mass produced in factories, but at some point you had cheese like Brie, which was from a place, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that came from literally their little bacteria culture. Um, mm-hmm. But it was a culture nonetheless. Yeah. And like guys like Wendell Berry, it's very mm-hmm. important to him to stay right where his ancestors have been. I, yes. That's just, there's something beautiful about that, and, and it's uh, um, your acceptance. You know, I think joy comes from that. Really, your acceptance of yourself and your position. I yeah, I I think joy would be a good way to describe it. It has been it has been for me. I don't know that um, it's for everybody. I mean, I'm sure uh, God calls people sometimes away from where they're from, but for me, it's been it's been very good and necessary. Yeah. So do you remember uh, discovering poetry or how poetry discovered you or <laughs> your first kind of contact with it or or when like the lights, I don't know, came on uh, or the, the, the desire? I mean, I mean, I, I think everybody has some sort of early experience with poetry yeah. that was just fun. Uh, I remember reading me and my buddy Chris on the bus ride home, which was long. I mean, it was only 10 miles, but we had to do this back and forth thing. And we would get books of poetry at the library. Um, 
Shel Silverstein. I mean, yeah. it's not like, it's not like we were reading the Iliad at that point, but um, we could have. But Shel Silverstein he was just so much fun, and we would just he would read he would read one poem and then hand me the book, and then I'd read one poem, and they were hilarious, and the illustrations were yeah. just amazing. Um, yeah, Sarah, and, Cynthia, Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, it's it's perfect for a kid because it's pretty relatable. But I, I mean, they were also they just it wasn't just that the content was funny. The, I mean, just saying like that, serious, Sarah synthesis, Sylvia stout is a tongue twister. It's fun to try to yeah. say when you're young, that language is just new on your tongue. Yeah. And you're, and you're just hearing this. You're just hearing it. Um, and that, that was fun. The music of it was fun. Yeah. And there's like an edge to a lot of his too. It's like, if you don't take the garbage out, you know, or the, <laughs> or the guy who began to eat everything and there's nothing in, he is reduced to eating himself till there was nothing, nothing, nothing left. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, in your little child's imagination thinking, well, wow, consuming too much could be bad, you know, yes. that adds yes. to it. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, it's, yeah, you're exactly right. I haven't, it's been a while since I've been in that book. I have them all for my kids, but it is, it, you're right. He's doing some very adult things with yeah. what seems like very childish <laughs> poems but it's pretty wonderful yeah was your um is your family that you grew up with uh artistic or anybody Um, else share your loves uh yeah i mean my my dad always read a lot um and would write um i i mean he would he would uh he had a, a yellow legal pad that was always on the kitchen table and he would mm. just copy passages of scripture out and, mm. and other things he, he I had, he, I think he had probably zero ambition to be a writer. Um, that wasn't, that wasn't even part of, uh, a, a category probably for him. Um, my mom, on the other hand, she was, she was artistic and is artistic. Um, she had, she had, they got married when they were 18 and 19, which is a pretty typical kind of farm farm community kind of thing mm-hmm. to do in the seventies. Um, and, uh, she went to college for a few classes and took a drawing class. Uh, and I just remember like inheriting her sketchbook from that class where she'd done these really great sketches mm-hmm. and then like flipping to the next blank page and like, just thinking this is, this is my page. That was her page, but that kind of being a, uh, walking in her footsteps. She's, she's written, uh, she wrote all growing up to, uh, she wrote for the local newspaper and, uh, Stockman farmer, Stockman Grassman farmer, which, which is a ag mag, ag newspaper kind of thing. Um, and then when I was in college, uh, after I graduated, she went back and got her degree and wrote a novel. Hmm. Um, but it's, it, I think, it, I mean, I, I think most of her ambition was just kind of just to settle things in her head. Um, it wasn't, yeah, I don't know that it would be a professional ambition, more of an amateur kind of just love for it. Yeah. You mentioned your dad uh, copying, like writing out scriptures and that. Uh, how, how, did, how was faith, what role did faith play in your life growing up and now today as well? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't really a, a question. I, it's, it's funny, like, 
I guess to talk about my faith, I need to talk about my parents as well. My mm-hmm. dad was raised Catholic. The town I grew up in, Umbarger, was uh, it, it was a parish. It literally was a parish mm-hmm. of St. Mary's uh, in a, a bunch of when it was when it became a town. It was essentially uh, built around the church there, St. Mary's Catholic Church. Um, and all these surrounding farms would kind of attend that, and that was their communal functions. But um, he left the Catholic Church when he was in high school, um, basically, and then married my mom, who was uh, Protestant. And they were, it was in the 70s, so it was kind of this uh, charismatic Jesus hippie kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was in at least in whatever strain they wound up in it was there was a high prize on scripture knowing it having it in you so I, that just became a, a thing that dad did and mom too um so that wasn't really a question but it was i feel like a bit of a mutt growing up um they 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 didn't attend regularly um throughout my growing up it was regular conversations. We prayed at meals um, and a pretty sincere faith uh, on their part and wanting to pass that down to us. But uh, they didn't, they, they stopped attending church regularly. I, I actually started, my sister and I started going to the Southern Baptist church in, uh, in Canyon, the town over hmm. and did all through middle school and high school. I was baptized there. I attended two or three times a week. Uh, and then I, I went to college and then after college, I began working at a kind of an evangelical mega church. I worked in their marketing department, which mm. is a funny, funny thing to have at a church. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's funny looking back on it now, seeing it yeah. seems a little bit absurd to me then, but I'm, I'm really grateful for that. That yeah. season of life, it put me in a, it made me recognize ministry as something I need to be doing, but not in a vocational way, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, it's mm-hmm. part of, part of exercising faith is to be, uh, well, and, and the same thing as being in, in, in a community is to, is to serve mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. Um, and that, that can be done in church. It can be done, uh, civically, but. I, I think both of those things are important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a little bit of a, I'm a little bit of a mutt right now. I'm, I, I I go to a church that I, I I guess would be called evangelical, which has so much uh, baggage with that mm-hmm. word, but it's not part of any mainline denomination. Mm. Um, I just I just got a master's of fine arts from a from a Catholic university, um, and it was sincerely a Catholic program. I mean, there's some ostensibly Catholic schools, but this one was, I mean, we prayed before every class Mm. and, um, I I had a a monk in my, in one of my classes and a priest in another class. Nice. Um, and the, the question came up often, like, what kind of Christian are you? (laughs) I would try to explain it. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, about it's, it's, it's real. It's important to me. Um, um, and my my family attends this church that we've been going to for uh oh gosh twelve years now wow so, yeah it's been wow. good it's been good for us that's awesome so to you what is what is poetry um 
Uh, poetry is, uh, I guess a, a simple definition that I, I come back to over and over again is it's memorable speech. Hmm. Um, hmm. which is, which is really as bad as broad as, as broad as you can get mm-hmm. of the definition. Um, but it, I, I mean, if you, if you go back to like every culture in humanity has poetry, this is, it's all, I mean, before there were cave paintings, there was poetry. Um, and that, so wow. that goes back, that that's goes back a long, that, that's, that, that's quite a point. Yeah. yeah. That goes back a long ways. Um, and it, but I mean, so, so well before there was any sort of written alphabet, mm-hmm. um, there was, there was poetry. They would, they would kind of sing these stories to one another. Um, and I, I have a hard time imagining what this looks like in some sort of caveman context, but it, ha- mm-hmm. it has to like, this is how your history comes down. Like, right. If you're from a place or, um, this is the only way that it comes back. Down mm-hmm. to you. I can't get on Wikipedia and look back to my caveman ancestors and say, this is when such and such happened. Mm-hmm. It comes down to you through the speech. And the easiest way to make that speech memorable is to have rhythm. And then eventually rhyme comes in. Um, and maybe some sort of melody. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, surely. But I think rhythm and rhythm and rhyme uh, make that much more memorable. So mm-hmm. it, it, is if you're going to have a memory of your people and your place, it's going to come through the speech yeah. and making. So I think that's, that's the first function of poetry. Yeah. I just uh, read um, C.S. Lewis's out of the silent planet mm-hmm. uh, recently. And it's interesting that he, the creatures on Mars, like some of the first creatures that ransom encounters are, they're like ransom didn't know if they were animals, you know, at first, uh, but they're portrayed very as like primal creatures. Mm -hmm. But then Lewis had them as their, the thing that they did that they were known for, they were known for poetry. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wait a minute. I thought they're supposed to be uh, primal, you know, animal like, but yet they're doing what we would typically call the highest thing, poetry. And and it, it made me stop and think. And according to like what you just said, bringing us back to know, actually poetry is one of the most fundamental ways of communi- communicating, of remembering, of uh, conveying who we are uh, and encapsulating that. And so th- in a sense, it, it's, it's very primal too. And, and even like, well, I mean, even like the rhythm or the meter of it, it's like your mother's heartbeat, you know, talk about, um, talk about being close, you know, being very primal from your origins. It's, you know, poets are in touch more with that animal instinct. I don't know. Is there something to that as well? Yeah. I I mean, I I think you're, I think you're exactly right. It is, it is, it is primary. I mean, if language is a, it's definitely something that sets us apart from other animals mm-hmm. uh, as a, what is, <laughs> what is a mammal and what is a human mammal uh, having speech, uh, especially one that's as nuanced uh, and varying and has such a deep history as ours. I mean, there animals can communicate with each other. Sure. But not in the way that humans can. Um, so that, 
yeah, it is definitely a, what it is to be human is to have this speech. And yeah. I think, and to have a long memory that's kind of beyond just instinct. Um, like a wolf has a memory, but um, our memory is tied very much to the language. Hmm. So I, in, um, I think it was 1990, I, I was with a friend and uh, we were at, I don't know where we were at, but he, he we were getting threatened by bullies and, <laughs> and he was about to get beat up. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think he was even hit and um, by somebody punched and bleeding and we ran out of that place and like where where are we going to hide and so we ran across the street into a movie theater and uh we're like we'll we'll just hide out in here and so we slipped in sat down and this movie came on that just came out called the dead poet society Uh (laughs) (laughs) and and here's me and my friend you know these Mm -hmm. two teenage punks who were just in this fight and he was still bleeding and sitting down before this movie, we're like scared, but we knew we had to hide out here. But we we watched this movie that just my it's my favorite movie, uh, okay. probably um, okay, one of my favorites. Um, and there's a, a line a line in it in the middle of it uh, where in the movie's about poetry, obviously. But uh, Robin Williams' character, he's with his his class, and he gets them in this hushed moment in the classroom. And he asked, you know, why, why we read and write poetry. And I think one of the characters says to get women or some, someone, I don't, I don't know what they say, but he says, uh, we don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because, uh, we are members of the human race and the human race is filled with passion. He says, medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, and romance, and love—these are what we stay alive for. Interesting. Yeah, I I haven't seen that movie probably since high school, and I loved yeah. it. I loved it yeah. as a teenager. I don't know, looking back on it, if I would like it as much as a father, because <laughs> I I could probably identify with the, yeah, the dad yeah. a little more yeah. now than I could when I was a teenager. Um, but you're you're right. I think. Uh, are there truths in what he, in, in what he said? in that sentiment. Yeah. On some level, I, they, I would consider poetry, uh, another noble pursuit Mm. like, like engineering and all the other, Mm -hmm. the other part of the list. Uh, I think, uh, maybe a part of our problem, this goes back to Wendell Berry with our culture is that we tend to special, we specialize, Mm. And so that I can't be an engineer, but I can be a poet and I can go get these high degrees in poetry. And therefore I, I am a poet, but I mm-hmm. am cut off from the magic that is engineering. Mm. Uh, and therefore the engineer is also cut off from the magic of poetry. Um, and I don't know that we should be doing that. I mean, if I look back to my granddad, my granddad could build design and build a plow um, and also keep the accounting and also uh, understand commodity prices and also uh, pray the rosary from memory. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I wonder like if does that make sense? Like poetry yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Is, is another one of the noble pursuits that we can do. Now, I, I guess it is, it is primal uh, as far as language goes. Um, but so is, I don't know, making a spear, which is engineering on some sport. Uh, you know, like this is, this is what it is to be human and we should be cross pollinating a little better than yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? No, I, that makes I sense. I don't, I don't know if I've, if I've, uh, if I've gotten away with from what Robin Williams was saying in that movie or not, but it is, um, poetry is a way that we mark down what it is we stay alive for, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it, another, it's, 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 just, it's another part of our culture, I guess. I don't, I don't know. And all these, and all these things together, like making a plow, all these things together deepen one another too. Mm-hmm. Deepen your poetry, deepen your, deepen your plowing too. Yeah, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I, you know that's a that's a interesting. Thing. Wallace Stegner has this line that I love: uh, "A place isn't a place until it has had a poet." Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I probably, but you know, poet doesn't is not a first generation aspect of a culture. It's the I mean, I don't, I don't think because you got to, you have to plow because you've got to have food. So yeah. that, that part of your culture yeah. is, really has to come. But then a poet comes around and says, let's remember this stuff together. And maybe there's a gift for it uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, in the creation of that poetry that allows those farmers to recognize, oh, the place we are from really is important. Mm-hmm. We can't leave this place because we have a history and our memory is here and we can tell these stories about it. So that's probably the function of the poet. Um, but they're, I mean, they're equally, they're equally important. Poetry is not, I don't think it's higher than the farmer or the engineer or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why, like what stirs you and, uh, why do you, why do you write poetry? Like what, and, and like, what's your aim for? Do you have an aim when you're, um, writing a poem, something that you're trying to do goals you're trying to like achieve or, um, yeah. um, yeah, I usually I I sit down to write a poem. I mean, other than like a daily habit of practicing language, um, mm-hmm. which is just just having fun with the words, uh, and maybe it's to achieve sanity for yourself too. No, you know? that, I think that's I think that's ex- I, exactly that. Yeah. There's some sort of anxiety that drives me to the desk. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm trying to settle. It's not going to cure it. Um, a lot of people call it poetry therapeutic and it can be, um, but it, it, it won't cure it, but it does. I don't remember where this image came from. I think it's Seamus Heaney uh, or maybe Christian Wyman, probably both. Um, it just, it settles the waters for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Temporarily I can give it form, whatever the anxiety is just such an abstract Whatever, who knows what's causing it? Mm. Uh, it could be any number of circumstances in your day, or just the fact that you haven't eaten well, had too much coffee, and you have this this anxiousness. Uh, and then you try to give it form. Say, take it from the abstract ether, and say, here's something concrete that I can look at, mm. I can read, I can uh, try to give it a, a logic of grammar, I can give it music. Um, by the language and that settles the water f- for a little bit. Now tomorrow mm-hmm. they'll be, they'll be disturbed again. But, uh, for now I've, I've given it a form that can, I can 
handle um, that's concrete, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's one of the goals. That's, I mean, yeah, so you're not, you're not wrong. It does give you a little bit of sanity. Yeah. Um, and that's what primarily makes me want to sit down and actually finish a poem instead of just tinker with words. start a lot and not finish a lot or once you start one do you finish it you know what what what's that process like for you i tend i tend to like have a ton of ideas and that never get finished yeah i have a a legal pad over here next to me it's it's got my list of things that i need to be starting and finishing um i yeah i mean life is life is busy and i'm not there i mean there are there are people throughout history (laughs) who have uh, f- by whatever set of circumstances, maybe they were part of a, a feudal system that allowed them to sit and write all day and that was fine. Or maybe they are mm-hmm. a trust fund kid now, but like life, is, life is busy. Uh, a lot of responsibilities. When I used, I used to teach high school and a, a lot of times I would find myself writing poems, like driving to work. I'd be tapping mm-hmm. out syllables on a steering wheel or between classes or I'd set kids up to work on an assignment and then head over to my computer and, uh, work on something as I was doing it. Um, my new job is a little different. I'm a real estate appraiser. So there's the, the time is just different, Mm -hmm. differently structured through the day. Um, and I haven't quite figured it out yet, but there is, as far as like sitting down to write a poem, if something captures me, I'm going, I'm going to finish it. If I walk away from, from it too long, I'm going to lose it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it might have been a great poem. I don't know, but mm-hmm. I've lost it at that point. So the, I've got, I have to keep coming back to it so that it's, there's this exhaustion that happens from like moving it to the back of your brain. So mm-hmm. you can work on another task and then sliding it back up here. And if you push it back here too long, it's, it's gone. You never you're get back obs- to it. Yeah. Yeah. You're not just fine. That's, that's part of, that's part of it, I guess. Yeah. I can relate to that <laughs> for sure. Um, for sure. How, how about you mentioned several uh, poets, but what, what, what are some poets, who are some poets that have influenced you or that you go to that you enjoy? I mean, after Shel Silverstein. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, it's all downhill where, from there. Where, but... yeah, where do you go from there? Yeah. Um, uh, I remember right after college. So now I, I have an English degree as a bachelor, a bachelor's degree when I'm 22 and I'm, I'm freshly skilled <laughs> in reading, <laughs> reading poems. And now I'm like, what am I going to do with this? Uh, and I remember coming across Dylan Thomas. Um, it was, it was, a in a movie. I think it was called Solaris. George Clooney <laughs> recites this poem and death shall have no dominion. Dead men naked shall be one with the man and the wind and the West moon. Um, and just being totally struck by the language of that poem. Mm-hmm. So I went, I went to the library at the university that I just graduated from and found Dylan Thomas and spent 
a lot of time with him. It was, so that was like my first entry into doing this on my own without a teacher kind of guiding my education. Uh, and just really loving what he did. I've, he's, he's still, I can still sit down with him and be like, wow, he's incredible. Uh, there's a limit to what he was doing, I guess. Um, that I, that I had to go find in some other people. Uh, after him, Robert Penn Warren was really significant for me. Um, he was a, he's from Kentucky. Um, and was, I think he was the first poet laureate of the United States. Mm. Um, but he, he was, he was what they called back then a man of letters. He wrote novels, he wrote poetry, he wrote cultural criticism. Mm-hmm. He wrote, he wrote a textbook on poetry called understanding poetry, which is where I got the definition memorable speech. Um, and I just tried to read everything. I read his letters. I read everything that I could find of his, um, because he had such a, a, a broad scholarship of what it was to be a poet. So those were two early influences mm-hmm. as an adult, as an adult saying, I would like to do this. Um, uh, so those are those are two big ones. I later uh, another significant one one for me was Christian Wyman, mm-hmm. who's still alive. Um, he is actually from my part of the world. He's from about a hundred miles south of us, which yeah. around here a hundred miles is like the next big city over. Um, <laughs> but um, he yeah, so he's from here. That was a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. You have these moments where things come alive again. And he, he, he kind of unlocked some things for me at a time that I was feeling stagnant and, uh, deeply indebted to him. I don't know if I am indebted to his poetry or just his thinking about poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, but both are, but he's, he's wonderful. Yeah, he is. Um, I have a couple of quotes from Owen Barfield, um, uh, okay. about, you know, poetry that I just want to run by you, see what you think. First one is uh, Barfield says, the poet, while creating anew, is likely to be, in a sense, restoring something old. So he's creating something new, but also restoring something old. What do you think Barfield's getting at with that? Um, that's a good question. Ezra, you know, Ezra Pound who modernist um, he's, he's credited a lot with working on T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Um, he had this, he had this dictum that he would say, which was make it new, uh, which I think is similar to that. Um, and one mm-hmm. of the things that the poetry is capable of doing um, where you're, you're taking a truth that has been handed down to you. And you may receive it in the form of cliches. Mm-hmm. It does not make a cliche untrue. It just means that you don't pay attention to it anymore. Mm. Um, it becomes part of the background noise. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think one of the tasks of the poet, whether Barfield or Ezra Pound, they're saying <clears throat> there is a truth that exists. You need to make it alive again. Something mm. that catches people's attention, make it novel. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a big task of art in general Mm -hmm. is to make 
these old truths that have been uh, kind of burnished into cliche now into something that's useful again um, by making by making it seem new. Yeah. And I, a lot of people try to shortcut that by making it um, transgressive, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, make make it shocking is a is a way that may, some mm-hmm. people may try to may try to make it seem new. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that's I don't think that's what that really means. I think making it new, making something old uh, that is actually very old, making it seem new is uh, uh, has more to do with beauty than some sort of, mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Cause beauty yeah. will catch you. Uh, beauty yeah. will catch you. It makes it desirable then. Yes. It makes it desirable and it will, it will make you stop in your tracks. Yeah. Um, and it can be, there's a, <clears throat> there's a, uh, an artist here in Amarillo, uh, Bethany fields. She's a pastelist. Um, and she has this, I mean, she's, she's, she has generally wonderful paintings that are yeah. landscapes. Um, and they're, I mean, they're just, they're beautiful. Uh, that's kind of there. Uh, there'd be something you would want to hang on your wall. But mm-hmm. she has this one that just, I love so much. It's a picture of her alley <laughs> and there's a dumpster and like these utility lines. Uh, and you know, and the, like the falling down fences that people have in their backyard. Uh, but the light filtering through the elm trees, is in the midst of that and the color palette that she uses and stuff is just, it, mm-hmm. it, it makes me realize like she was walking out, taking her trash one day, which is this mundane task. Mm-hmm. And she was caught by this moment of light um, and had to, had to give it form, had to put it down, capture it in pastel dust. You know, that's crazy. Um, uh, and I, that, that really strikes me as something that's, that we should be doing right here's this thing that we do all the time and we generally like we don't pay attention to it or we even despise it but then beauty comes out and catches us and makes us how oh, like plato would say pregnant with mm. this thing that has to be captured somehow i really like that because we're all doing mundane tasks mm-hmm. all day long um yes but to be able to then to see these moments and capture them mm-hmm. re- recorded uh, memorable speech, right? About them. That's right. That's so right. The, this other quote uh, from Barfield, and maybe it's maybe it's more of the same, but he says, he says, and what is the very essence of poetry if it is not this quote metaphorical language, this marking of the before unapprehended relation of things? So he's talking about metaphor. Meta- poetry has metaphorical language and metaphors. He defines as this marking of before of unapprehended relation of things. Mm-hmm. So how important is metaphor in poetry? Um, and what's he, what's he driving at there? You know, I don't, those, those two quotes are probably actually related. I don't know mm-hmm. where they came at in his, his body of work, but uh, one of the things, one of the ways in which you could make something new with poetry <clears throat> is to make this hitherto before <laughs> whatever yeah. not a relation between two unlike objects. Yeah. Some, like like beautiful I've, sunlight and garbage. Sure. Exactly. Right. Yes. Okay. Suddenly we don't, yeah. Suddenly we've, we've been put these two things together. Yeah. Uh, and language does that in a different way, obviously than the painting mm-hmm. does. The painting 
I mean, I guess there are metaphors in painting. I'm not, I'm not quite the, uh, I don't know the, the philosophy behind that as much, mm-hmm. but, but I mean, that is what, that's what poetry trucks in is right. Mm-hmm. Is language making these connections between two different kinds of things. And suddenly it seems new, mm-hmm. right? Like that. You're right. Garbage and sunlight. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the other, the other task of a metaphor of a metaphor is also that metaphysical act of mm. the concrete to the abstract. Um, right. So we can talk about love, but love is pretty abstract. We can talk about truth, but that's, that's abstract, but I can put these in words and now they're concrete and that's making that metaphysical leap from this, uh, thing that I hold in my hand to, something I know is out there, but I can't see or touch or feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think metaphors, I would, that's one of the gifts that God has given us to make these leaps into things. If no one has seen God, then how do we, how do we know? How do we think that there is a God? How do we think that there's anything that's abstract? How do we think that there is love? How are we not just a bag of chemicals that have certain reactions and we just call that love or whatever? Mm-hmm. And people say that it's a hard time believing that anybody would actually think that's true. Um, and so we have language that can help us make that leap into the metaphysical. Um, and I, again, I think that's, that's a gift from God. Mm-hmm. He hasn't left us here. <laughs> to blindly stumble around in our chemical bags or whatever. It's like Jacob discovering the ladder to heaven and he's able to go, you know, up and down between, between the two. I think a metaphor could be like that. We're able to encounter both worlds and, and see that they're maybe more united than we realize. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's, a, that's a perfect, that's a perfect one. Actually, Jacob's would, ladder. I um I was listening to um an interview with Christian Wyman. Um mm-hmm. I think it was with Terry Gross on Fresh Air on NPR or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um he he was talking I think he was talking about metaphor but and they were talking about that that kind of idea but he said when when he got um his cancer diagnosis um and then he Start, how did that change his writing? He said something to the effect of suddenly he just wanted to talk uh, to like just about mundane things just for their own sakes. Uh-huh. And he didn't want to have any of these, you know, higher applications or implications, but he just wanted to write about, I don't know what, what are some examples, but just like write about the flora and fauna of his area just for the sake of noticing it. And like, that's yeah, yeah. it. Uh, because it was hmm. it was a way of like for him, I guess at that time, keeping that permanent in his life, which was being you know threatened, being shortened. Sure. He wanted to to lengthen that. Uh, but even as I say that, there still is a metaphor <laughs> in there because he's using those the uh, the description of the mundane for its own sake to capture a permanence, which that's an abstract idea in and of itself. That's exactly right. I mean, like his, his, oh, there's the Mary Oliver quote, uh, attention is the beginning of devotion. I think that's Mary Oliver. Uh, yeah, he's, 
his paying attention to those things that he might have overlooked otherwise is love. Mm. Um, and therefore he's, he's captured love in a concrete way. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Paying attention to something is love. I love that. Mm -hmm. I'm paying attention to that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I want to, I want to get into one of your poems now. Uh, okay. Uh, at, at this point. So how about let's do catch all. I know that's a little bit of a longer one, but I really like it. Uh, you sent it to me, um, last night and I woke up this morning, like at 2am and I was like, what are the coyotes? And I'm sitting there (laughs) in my head and, and like continuing to process this. And I'm not quite, not quite there yet, but, um, it, 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 again, it's one of these poems that I think, yeah, good poems slowly reveal themselves to you, not just over the hours, but over the days and months and years, um, as well, as you as you think about them. But could you? Well, I hope I hope this one has those kinds of layers to it. Um, yeah, yeah, I would I would be happy to. Uh, so this if you my, need if you need to introduce it, whatever. But yeah, sure. could you read that one? Yeah, um, uh, it's called Catch All. Um, it's told in the voice of a priest um, who has, you know, left, he left his country home uh, to go off to seminary and to do his priestly vocation, uh, but has returned uh, because his, his father has died and his, his mother is now widowed. So he's, he's kind of helping out some chores around the house. Um, and it opens, it's just kind of a conversation uh, between them. Uh, it does, it has uh, a moment in in there, his mother asks him to pray and I'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and he begins to pray, but a lot of times as a person prays, you have other thoughts that are going on in your head while you're also saying this thing that's out loud, but nobody has access to your thoughts except for God who is hearing your words and also your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, this is called catch all mom folds the newspaper and says, Stay for dinner after you fix daddy's chair. I say, in town, they call dinner lunch, to which mom, to which she says, cows chew and call it moo. I know, mom, butchered rabbits don't split hairs. I catch down a coffee can labeled three-inch wood screws from a shelf of cans. It yields a handful of quarter-inch nuts and a single screw. That's sin, Dad would have said, if he weren't buried in the land. Proof of his lifetime's coffee-drinking lines the shelves misnamed. A tipped oil court has long since coated the workbench, swallowing dust. Thumb runes, mice signs, scribed in viscous mud. One drawer he denoted catch-all holds Flats, but no Phillips, worn round having been jammed in plows, broken pliers, seed drill gears, boxed sickle teeth, a grinder wheel ground having showered sparks against a weld bead, and two loose screws of various lengths makes three in hand. After the chair's repair, Mom sits where he sat and looks at her son, the priest, It creaks, she says, but at least it doesn't break. 
Father, Son, she continues, say grace. Grace. Our Father who art. Or grace, a dancer's ball on. Or a turned cheek. Be thy name. Or a dry brow, despite a skipping heart. Grace catches all. On earth as... Coffee steeped thrice has more flavor. I might call grace coyote, the word-grown flesh to scavenge among us as coyotes and truth. Give this day to us our daily. We have all received coyote upon coyote. God pondered the glory of man, our decanters brimming at steam. God was sorry that he'd filled us, yet kept pouring watching our coffee cans displace name with nomenclature, with each misnamed creeping creature. So, God sent us all a band of coyotes, yipping east and west in the star-dark night. Our hearts, like rabbits in turn rows of ribs, skipped beat. We slept uneasily. Come dawn, we stirred the fire, Fried cakes of pone and bacon fat, brewed coffee, said coyote. Forgive us our debts, and found holes in our chests. Coffee poured from our throats, an empty set of ribs where coyotes broke through the bones. For thine is the power, the glory, and the creaking throne. Wow. I love hearing you read it. Thank it's, you. It's helpful. You, your, um, yeah, the vowel sounds, the consonant sounds, and even the rhythm, like even in the second to last line, an empty set of ribs where coyotes broke through the bones. Just very, very satisfying. But um, the the first half. I'm tracking with I'm tracking with you there, so there's a mm-hmm. and you know elaborate, but um, I'll just let you elaborate. Okay, uh, more on, more on the poem. Well, I I mean in the I guess in the literal sense, I, it is there's a lot going on in this poem. Yeah. One, it's 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 mom and son sitting in the kitchen. She says, "Can you fix Dad's chair?" Um, Part of the, I mean, part of the reason I call it catch-all. I mean, I think most most families in America have some sort of junk drawer mm-hmm. um, that is just where you you put stuff, batteries and screwdrivers, stuff that you'll need at some point, but not mm-hmm. all the time. Um, <clears throat> uh, so his mom asked me to, to to go out to the shop and get some tools to work on the dad's chair. So he goes out there and he finds. Um, tools that have been misplaced. Mm-hmm. They're now in cans that are misnamed um, because dad's gone. He doesn't keep, he doesn't keep the shop anymore. Um, other people have gone in and out and messed the organization up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he, he's trying to make, he's trying to make sense of it. Um, he finds the catch all drawer, uh, which is just jammed full of old tools that are no longer useful, but have been used. Yeah. Um, and then he comes back in for lunch 
as he would call it dinner as yeah. people in the country would call it. Um, and, uh, his I, love that, I love that because, because right away, I mean, he's a priest first of all too. Mm-hmm. So you have this wedding of, you know, heaven and earth basically of mm-hmm. higher, but then with this very gritty, oily <laughs> mud mice track, you know, kind of thing happening. Mm-hmm. And, and he's bringing this, you know, sophisticated, it's lunch, it's not dinner, mm-hmm. you know? So right away, that's, it makes me smile. I like that. <laughs> well, thanks. That it has, and I don't, it doesn't get the laughs that I want it to, but it has one of my favorite lines I've ever written. Butchered rabbits don't split hairs. Yeah, yeah. Like I um, can imagine his dad saying that, you know, yeah. and, and he's recalling this, you know, t- to his mom remind, you know, like, yes, yes, I know. I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't, I, I mean, also just the pun. I'm sorry. Yeah. H A R E S versus yeah, a split hair is a butcher. There's a butchered rabbit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. It's, <laughs> um, but, uh, it, yeah. So he gets, yeah, he goes to the shop or he comes back and he's praying and he's, he's, he's considering the word grace. Mom says, say grace, which is a lot of people refer to the prayer you have at meals. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in terms of, uh, theology, that word gets thrown around a lot to mean different things. <laughs> uh, and there's a list of them there. It's funny. My wife and I went to Santa Fe last week for our anniversary and <laughs> we, uh, there was a store that sold this real kitschy jewelry and it, it had a sub tagline for the store that said, wear your grace. Mm. I don't even, I don't even know what it meant, but it was, uh, it's just like, here's a pretty word. We're going to throw it in and try to sell some stuff. Mm. Um, and I, I, being in, in different church circles, I feel like that word gets thrown around a lot. <clears throat> grace. Um, and I, it, it, it struck me as a word that was not particularly useful anymore, kind of like a, an old Phillips screwdriver that was used for purposes that it wasn't meant for. And now mm-hmm. it's worn out and it's just stuck in the catch all drawer that doesn't mm-hmm. full, full of tools that are no longer useful. So I, I wanted to, I wanted to play around with the idea of like, what would make that word come back alive? Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially kind of what Owen Barfield was saying, making something mm-hmm. new, um, and uh, the using the word coyote instead of instead of grace as this kind of I don't know if you pay attention to the way coyotes hunt and this and this poem is in a larger collection where coyotes the the sim, the symbol symbolic language of a coyote becomes more and more significant in that in that context but mm-hmm. um, but I mean, if you look at the way coyotes hunt they they have strategy <laughs> they're very very smart animals mm-hmm. um they exist on this border between mankind and the mm-hmm. wild um and they're uh, they're they're violent <clears throat> i mean they mm-hmm. they live by killing things that's how they that's that's how they live mm-hmm. um uh in they're and I, they're like they're the trickster kind of figure of the animal they're sneaky you can't pin them down right yeah yeah, yeah. i mean I, there's there's been large concerted attempts to annihilate them from, from <laughs> the United States. And they're still alive. There's a, like, there's my dad used to tell me, I don't know if this is true or not, but he tell he would tell it like, you know, the native Americans would say, 
after the last man is buried, the coyote will dig up his femur and carry it off <laughs> out of the grave. Um, because wow. they're they're ju- they're just they're just survivors. Um, yeah, yeah. They're, incredi- they're incredibly witty. Um, so, I in my in my mind, that was a very useful way to think about grace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in all those various facets of what a what a feral thing a coyote is, mm. but um, just won't leave us alone. Mm. So. And 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 grace is a trickster. It outwits death. It uses death against death to give life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, it'll, it'll carry off our bones <laughs> in the end. It'll unbury us, you know? Ooh, that's pretty good. I like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> and not just our bones, but you know, our whole life via resurrection. Sure. But yeah, uh, I love, I love to, it, it made me chuckle. Uh, when she addresses her son, he's a priest. Yeah, so she calls son. him father, son. At first I thought you're trying to, I don't know about the Trinity, father, son and Holy. And I thought, Oh, you know, I'm going to look for Holy spirit now somewhere. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, she's just addressing him. Father, son. It's, that's fun. Um, is there anything at the, at the beginning where she, she folds the newspaper? Um and maybe there is, maybe there isn't, you know, let, let the reader understand, but, um, well, I, I mean the, the poem it's, it's, if you just hear me read it, you're not seeing the form necessarily on the page. There is actually a, a pretty rigid rhyme scheme and rhythm to it. Um, yeah, there is, but, uh, uh, to, to a certain point and then the whole thing falls apart whenever the coyotes show up. Um, mm-hmm. that's what happens. That's what Grace does. Um, but that first line, "Mom folds the newspaper," is is set apart. It's not it's not in a stanza like the rest of them. Uh, it's all set off on itself. Um, yeah, there's probably a reason for it. Yeah, I don't. Well, um, upon hearing your explanation and tie to grace, I mean, I'm already um, thinking of things that are are um, that. I don't know, are satisfying to me, such as, you know, you have his, histories recorded in the newspaper and she's folding it up, you know, she's, it's um, allowing for this other thing to change history, you know, the coyote or grace or whatever, um, or, or even folding. I don't know. I think, I think with your introduction, people can then meditate on it and um, see their own applications or metaphors. I, I will, I will be glad to let them do that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not accidental. I didn't just couldn't figure out how to fit into a stanza. And that's, I, I mean, that may be a, a good thing to recognize when you're reading any poems is if a poet who knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. uh, is messing with the form, whether it changes a meter or it changes a rhyme scheme, or if you see it on the page and you can see breaks and stanzas and stuff, uh, they're probably doing it on purpose. Mm-hmm. If they're, if they're, if they're really good. Um, and there's probably something there. I have a professor who would probably argue with me about that. Um, who who says there's no meaning that's not conveyed in the air. Basically, like if it's if it's on if it's if you're doing meaning stuff on a page, you're missing that primal aspect of what poetry is. That, just that language. Um, but it um, there is. I mean, it is. We most people read poetry now, so you're you're seeing it on yeah, the page for there's, sure. There's there is an aspect uh, to the way meaning is conveyed uh, typographically, mm-hmm. and even the way like 
you put periods within the line rather than, mm-hmm. you know, just at the end of a stanza or, or that, you know, things like that or how sentences bleed on one stanza bleeds into another stanza. And yeah, it's, it's great to, it's great to look at, uh, as well. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. Thank so you. For as we, me. yeah, as we close then, um, if, if, um, what what would you say to encourage people if they like maybe they're i i guess two two kinds of questions one is if if someone wants to uh has an inclination to write some poetry how would you encourage them uh, should should they be afraid should they do certain things but then the the next question is maybe you have no inclination to um write poetry but you just want to uh, you've been kind of stimulated by this and you want to start enjoying it, reading some for yourself. So those those two questions, uh, where would you direct people or what would you say? Um, well, if you want to write poetry, um, you need to be reading poetry. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I would start with old poetry, stuff that's really stood, this, stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean – there's, there's a, obviously there's a valuable function for contemporary poetry for people continuing to write right now. Um, but a large, a large aspect of that is just, is just marketplace stuff. Uh, what, what are the contemporary trends if you wanted to jump on that? But before, before there's ever a marketplace, there has to be just the enjoyment of language, um, where you, you have fun, uh, you just, you just think like, I, I, it really just comes back down to this. Like there's just simple pleasure in the way mm-hmm. the words sound. Yeah. Um, so writing poetry, you got to start there. You got to read poetry. I think reading old po- poems, like I said, is, uh, those things that really have carried through humanity and by memorable speech. Now we're looking at thousands of years of memory. There's so much conveyed in that. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's scripture or something like like we talked about earlier, the Iliad. Um, but I think that's probably where you, where you need to start. Um, I do, there is, um, I have, uh, here with me, it's a a book. It's a real thin book. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's a called how to think like a poet by Hmm. Ryan Wilson. Mm -hmm. Uh, wise blood books, uh, has this and it's, I don't know, it's maybe 20. Yeah. It's about 20 pages long. Wow. Um, he does a really good job of like saying, this is what poetry has been for humanity for a long time. And if you're going to start writing poems, that's a, uh, he, he makes a very strong case for it being hospitable. Hmm. It's not just journal. It's not just diary entries. It's not, uh, obscurity for obscurity's sake. Um, but you're intending to be hospitable to your reader. And he makes a really strong case for how to do that. Uh, how to think like a poet mm-hmm. by Ryan Wilson. Um, as far as somebody who is now beginning to read poetry and wanting to enjoy it, but it hasn't maybe, maybe they got ruined by their high school English teacher, which <laughs> I may have done to a couple of kids. Um, I, I, again, it's, it's just, it's just pleasure. Don't go into it thinking, well, there I've got to, I've got to figure out these deep meanings. One of the reasons that like the Iliad is still around or, so that we read scripture mm-hmm. is because it has these incredible stories and they're told poetically. 
whether using figurative language or the the meter and the rhyme, um, and it's just it's just fun or it's just this incredibly heartbreaking story of of Hector going off to fight Achilles while his his wife uh, is grieving, realizing that her husband mm-hmm. is going out to his death. Like this this is really meaningful, but also like cinematic. It's just like the same reason I would sit down to watch a movie is the same reason that I would want to read that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not there to like try to strain gnats out of some weird combination of words mm-hmm. and, and then get, you know, write some thesis statement for an essay later. <laughs> um, that's not pleasurable. Who would want yeah, to do that? Yeah. Um, so that that's good. I, as far as like people of faith, I, I suggested this book to you, uh, couple weeks ago but um here's a good anthology christian poetry in mm-hmm. america since 1940 edited by micah maddox and sally thomas um as far as like poems that are going on now and if you and and they have to do with faith because sometimes it's hard to it's hard to find that mm-hmm. um I, people that listen to this podcast may be interested in reading that yeah uh there's a there's a good swath of different kinds of poems, different uh, yeah. versions of Christian faith. Um, yeah. I do have my copy here. <laughs> there you go. And it it's, does. It's um, I love the bios. They, uh, at, yes. at the beginning of each poet, they'll give a few, few poems from each poet, but they'll give a nice bio and the historical, you know, context, their life, whatnot. It's really yeah. helpful. It I, is. A fantastic it, yeah. book. Yeah. I've, I've really appreciated it. And Sally Thomas, one of the editors is actually a, she's a, she's a fantastic poet herself. So mm-hmm. uh, if you wanted to, you could check her out. Yes. Yeah. Well, but. thanks for coming on uh, the show today. Again, for people go to uh, sethwick.com and you can r- read more of Seth's poems. Um, they're fun to read. They're pleasurable in and of themselves. Um, look up the uh, Ulysses Arrives at Amarillo uh, on YouTube and listen to Seth uh, read that uh, and talk about it as well. Um, I just, yeah, really thrilled to get to know you and have you on the podcast and help to kind of stimulate this with uh, our listeners. I think uh, I, I don't like the evangel. We talked about the evangelical church. I, I just don't think there's, um, I don't know, there's kind of a depravity of, of poetry uh, in our in it right now. And, and it can definitely provide some, something uh, that we need, I think. Yeah. I think it would be helpful. Um, It would be helpful if people would engage, especially with language and try to get past the cliches. I mean, it's one of the things I admire about this podcast is you're getting past that kind of bumper sticker cliche of this language that we use and trying to make it new for yourself, let let alone for other people. Just like for yourself. Yeah. All right. Well, again, thanks for joining us. If anyone wants to learn more, go to bumperstickerfaith.com. This has been episode 99. So um, thank you for bringing us to the edge, Seth. And uh, we'll see everybody next time. Bye.